Hi there, welcome to Stoked to Be Here. My name's Laura and I'm the back half of Stella Tandem Around the World Record. Um, and in the lead up to our trip, we're talking to people from the worlds of endurance and cycling. I'm delighted to be joined today by Emily Chappell, who has rather an impressive CV of cycling adventures, um, which I'm sure we'll hear more from that in a minute. But first of all, good evening, Emily. Hello, nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so admittedly, you're you're partly at fault for all of this um, because we went to a a talk in Buxton where you were um, joined by the rather wonderful Jenny Graham, um, who um, told us all about her round the world record. She's the female record holder, and you were there as well talking about your adventures. So you had a part to play in the <laughs> initiation of this madness, shall we say? Um, so I wanted to kind of thank you for that first of all, and um, it was linked to your two books which are out as well which have been kind of instrumental in our planning too but first of all can we just start at the very very beginning how did how did it all come about how did you end up on a, on a bicycle oh well um it wasn't a promising beginning I wasn't a sporty kid or anything I got into cycling when I was um I guess in my mid-20s I'd just finished university and moved to London and I didn't really have um enough work and London was far too big and it was all just awful and somehow I decided I wanted to get into cycling just so that I could get around and I think maybe so that I could have something that was mine because London I had no control over it whatsoever really it was too much for me and then cycling in London is actually great like it's cheaper you can get everywhere faster and you learn how the city gets together so before I just used the tube map which is not really a map at all it's more of a sort of a diagram of where the, the lines are under the ground, it doesn't help you. And all of a sudden, instead I was using the A to Z. Um, this was the days before iPhones. Um, and just started to learn how everything fit together and how to get to places and learn that places weren't even that far apart unless you tried to go by tube. And this sense of sort of, I don't know, coloring in the map, I guess, has stayed with me. Like now when I ride around, I'm constantly finding new places and finding out how they relate to the places I already know. And even in areas that I know very well or have visited a lot, there's always so much more to discover. And I love the fact that, you know, if I had to ride to, I don't know, pick, pick a city um, anywhere in England, I reckon I could probably get there without consulting a map if I really had to. And in some cases would even be able to get there via back roads. And it's just such a wonderful way of getting to know the world. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And um, I've certainly since I've started doing more long distance, more Ordax riding, you, my geography has improved dramatically <laughs> around the UK. It's it's a funny thing, isn't it? When you speak to some people, they don't don't even know where the main cities are in, in relation to each other. And suddenly you start to learn about very obscure towns and villages and the, the routes to them. So that was obviously the, the very beginning. How did it escalate from that into kind of from what was kind of a, a more to do with your work with careering and everything and a kind of a means to an end how did it become more of a, a hobby or almost a way of life I'd say well I got into it really fast so I think it was partly because I happened to meet quite early on people who were doing big rides at Audaxes and also it came at a time in my life where I was looking for a thing, I think, you know, if it hadn't been cycling, it would have been class A drugs or something, <laughs> maybe not that, but <laughs> yeah, I needed a big thing in my life um, and cycling came along at the right moment. So 
I got obsessed really quickly and started doing big rides quite early on. Um, and then after a couple of years, um, in tandem with a global recession, I ended up becoming a cycle courier because I simply could not get any other job. But that was actually the best thing that ever happened to me, really, because I'd always wanted to do that because obviously cycle couriers are like the coolest people in the world. But I, I probably wouldn't have got around to it if I'd found a real job. Um, and it turned out to be, I mean, definitely hands down the best job I've ever done, even including all the bad bits. And um, that meant that I got used to riding you know, 50 hours a week in all weathers, um, get very tough very quickly, get very fit and extremely tired all the time. Um, I ate just unbelievable amounts. I really, really miss how much I did. <laughs> And, you know, slept very well all the time as well. And that's just, what a great way to live life. You know, once you're outside all the time, you're eating well and you're hungry and you have an appetite and good food and you're sleeping very well. I mean, you can't not be quite happy and healthy at that point. Yeah. So that, that was the next thing. And then after careering, um, I, I had to find other ways of being on the bike for 15 hours a week. And so... I turned to long distance touring um, and then because I tend to escalate things I got into longer distance racing. Yes yeah, so yeah I mean it sounds it's really interesting because it sounds like the couriering's got a lot of parallels with with long distance racing apart from maybe the sleep aspect of it which I think is the one thing that that is dramatically different between the the two but it almost seemed before you you got into to the racing um so seriously you went off and did some fairly epic tours not necessarily circumferentially around the world but to a lot of kind of very different very interesting places and what what instigated that or what made you kind of take that step further i mean there's lots of people that will go you know and ride across the states and things like that but some of the the um places you went to were certainly off the beaten track well, it was, it was an idea that sort of fell into place gradually. So <clears throat> I think a couple of years into couriering, I'd started to, I had another secret job on the side. So I'd actually started to save a bit of money, um, which had not happened to me before. And I started to think maybe I should do an amazing bike tour, like do the West Coast of the US, because that would be amazing. Um, and I really wanted to go and do the Karakoram Highway. So I was planning these sort of what I thought were big trips. Um, I hadn't really put any dates in the calendar, but was sort of thinking, I'd like to do that. I wonder if I could do that. And then there was one fateful summer where there were a few different things that happened. Like there were a couple of books I read that gave me ideas. And there was one day I was, um, I went into my local bike shop on the way home because my bike had broken, which often happened. And I was moaning about, you know, I'd snapped a gear cable or something and I was complaining that my bike was always stupid bike it was always breaking and one of the mechanics said well you do know you, you ride about 300 miles a week of course your bike's going to break all the time and I just had this brief moment where I imagined all the distance I rode every week and thought well I've been doing this for what, two three years now so that many weeks that much that's thousands and thousands of miles I hadn't really thought about it and I imagined this as kind of a wiggly line drawn through London because I mean I it would just be a very wiggly line like a ball of wool I was in central London all the time on the same roads and I thought wow I wonder how many times that line could stretch around the world and this little light bulb appeared above my head <laughs> and I 
think was one of the big moments where I thought, you know what, I could just cycle around the world. Um, and then I was terrified uh, because I, it, this I've had on subsequent adventures as well. It's actually more scary when you know you can do it in a way because then you have to, and you know, you're going to, you have it in you, but it's still gonna be super hard and you don't have the excuse of, oh, you know, it's probably beyond me. So um, I realized that actually given my, my fitness, my experience, the kind of the courage and assertiveness that couriering had taught me and you know, various other attributes. I thought, well, I actually probably don't have any excuse for not doing this. But at the same time, I was terrified and I felt like I knew absolutely nothing about anything, like even cycling through France and I speak French. The thought of it was just terrifying. So I was scared for a whole year before I left. So how did you go about planning for, for all, all of these, these journeys? And I mean, did you do much preparation or was it just a case of you just went out there and, and kind of winged it and planned on the road? Um, I mean, things like, you know, you, you cross countries like Iran and things like that. How do you go about get, looking into visas and looking into the, the, the ins and outs of, of kind of setting it up? Or was it all as, as kind of the, the wind took you? Oh, no, it was it was most definitely not, because I went through quite a few challenging countries in terms of visa applications. So, but I mean, my Pakistan visa, I think, took me a full week of work, as in like, oh, probably more, because I did a, a full weekend at one point with no sleep, just because I had to, they wanted a full itinerary of every single day of my trip, which obviously I had no idea, so I just had to make <laughs> it up. That took a lot of time. And all this different paperwork I had to do and extra trips to embassies and things like that. Um, so I had, I, I didn't plan a route, but I did know which countries I was going through. And the way that sort of worked, some of it was countries I wanted to go through. Some of it was places where I knew people. So for example, one of the big, big, um, I don't know what you call it, important points of the journey was I have a friend who at the time was living in, uh, I think they were living in Islamabad or maybe in Lahore in Pakistan mm. um, and I'd been there before and so I promised this friend you know I will see you and I was hoping I'd be there for my birthday I think six months into the trip maybe and that necessarily then meant that I had to go through I wanted to go through Iran and into Pakistan across the border there um, so that meant I had to go through Iran and that meant I had to go through Turkey and it all just sort of lined up and then, oh yes, because it was it was ridiculous things like, I didn't want to go into, there's only two land routes into Pakistan. Um, one is with Iran and one is with China. And I didn't want to go in through China because you can cross into India from Pakistan, but at the time you couldn't get out the other side of India. So it was sort of a dead end. And I obviously wanted to continue. So that's a long winded explanation, but I spent a lot of time learning all of this and planning and figuring it out. Um, but then there were big areas of the trip that were just totally blank. So for example, Europe, I didn't make a plan at all, really. I had a few friends just in a couple of countries along the way, but big, big chunks where I didn't know anyone. And so I drew lines between friends and, you know, I'd know where, which friend I was aiming for next or just which city where I would stay in a hostel and wash my kit and things. And in between, it was just camping wherever. And knew that I, I think I planned to get it to Istanbul by a certain time, 
And in between those kind of enormous coordinates, I would just make it up. And that was always the best bit because in my experience, almost all the time when I'm on the bike, the best places I find and the best memories I have are the things that were not planned in advance. Like one of the best countries in the world, as far as I'm concerned, is Slovenia. And I went there because I stayed with a friend in Germany and she said, oh, well, my parents live in Slovenia, they'd love to meet you. And I thought, great, free food. Um, <laughs> and went through Slovenia. And I am ashamed to admit, I could not have put it on the map before I visited. And now I just, it's one of my favorite places. I go there whenever I get the chance, which is not often enough. Um, and most of the Balkans actually was, was unknown to me before. And now one of my favorite places to cycle. So I think in answer to the question, the planning was the important bits I planned quite carefully. And things like, you know, a lot of places like Europe, you can mostly, the places I went, you can just ride through and do what you want. But there are countries where, you know, the rules are different or the safety levels are different or anything like that. And you do have to do your homework. So I, mo I mostly got that right. There were a few things. <laughs> and I was also like building the bike was an incredibly stressful and time consuming thing. Because I decided to build it myself from scratch. A friend built the frame and I put it together. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And I made the mistake of asking every single mechanic I knew for their opinion, which meant <laughs> about 95 different opinions, which did not help with every single decision. So um, that was stressful. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, kind of a lot of work went into it. But yes, it sounds like you kind of got the best of both words, have that kind of bit of flexibility there. Um, and some of these countries, I think, we in the western world certainly we've got a lot of preconceptions about but was there anywhere particularly that was kind of challenging to rise through you know in terms of culture or just logistics or was there somewhere that was particularly you know surprising in, in that respect what kind of <laughs> differences did you see or challenges did you face I'm wondering I mean the the worst driving I experienced was in London on day three <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> my bike by someone. Thankfully, it's not very serious. Um, and I don't know, in terms of, of cultural differences and things, like when I was on the trip, everybody really wanted to talk to me about how I would find going through Islamic countries and how oppressive they are to women and all the rest of it. And I actually already knew it would not be as bad as the horror stories because I'd spent time in Pakistan and I. I don't know. I, I'd also met a lot of cyclists coming the other way. So in Istanbul, I met a lot of other people because it's kind of like it's the hourglass where people spread out across Asia and Europe, but they all go through Istanbul. So that's where you meet a lot of cyclists. And I met people who come through Iran and they said, don't listen to any of the rumours. Iran is the best place in the world. You'll have an amazing time. Everyone is friendly. And they really were. And the cultural difference between Iran and us is really that like Iranian culture is based on openness, friendliness and hospitality. And our culture is based on reserve and suspicion. So <laughs> it was an amazing place to travel. And yes, you know, they have a fairly oppressive Islamic government, but the people themselves are very, very different from the government. And, you know, there were varying levels of um, religious belief and devotion. There were a lot of people who were very, very anti-religion and everybody has to wear um, well, all the women have to wear headscarves and that's just the law. So it sort of ceases to mean anything really, because it, 
I think a lot of people have this problem in Iran. They're, they're like, well, I really am religious and I don't get to show it because everybody's wearing hijab. <laughs> so it was, yeah, as soon as you were there, it sort of ceased to be an issue most of the time. Um, and I mean, Pakistan was the same. I always struggle to say, well, I can't say which one was better. It was equally friendly. Um, I find China difficult mostly because of the language difference rather than the culture because I couldn't communicate at all except in the most basic way by showing people via sign language that I wanted to eat or sleep um, and it was fine and I was sort of amazed that it's possible for a person to travel solo across an entire country I mean an entire I don't know it's not a subcontinent, but I mean, it's massive. It's huge, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't speak a word of the language and I couldn't read a word of the script and I made it. And it's amazing that you can do that pretty much without language. However, when I got to, I took a month and went to Hong Kong to, um, I had to get another visa and I ended up spending a month in Hong Kong. And when I got there, because Hong Kong um, was a British colony, and is still very, very English. There's English signs everywhere, loads of people speak English, um, there's loads of sort of expats and, you know, I, someone bought me a pint of beer at one point and I had a massive flashback. And I got massively homesick there. And I think I suddenly realized that I had been really, really alienated in China because I was surviving in a very basic sense, but I had no engagement with anyone. I couldn't have a conversation. I couldn't explain to anyone how I felt or find out about them or anything like that. And that I think was, was quite difficult for me. I think it was, and it was my fault. You know, I should have tried to learn more Chinese. It's a difficult language, but people learn it. And I should have perhaps spent a bit more time on that. So that was, that was one of the biggest challenges, I think. Yeah, and it's similar to what I've kind of heard from other stories and things like that, that China is an amazing place to, to visit, but it's kind of that other step up culturally. Um, and equally, yeah, I'm quite disappointed that it doesn't look like we'll be going through Iran or Pakistan because they, they seem to have a wonderful reputation among cycle tourists, but maybe one for the bucket list one day. <laughs> um, and then you've obviously had a, a kind of a very wide range of, of experience. Are there any countries that you still haven't been to yet that you'd like to? I know the situation recently has not been um, good for that for long distance travel, but is there anywhere still on your bucket list? Everywhere. I think barely <laughs> the world. I've I feel like I've <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like I've barely touched the sides. Um, I haven't been to South America at all. And I don't even know where I'm going to start because I really, really love cycling in the mountains and South America is full of them. And I mean, I can't even just go there and ride the length of it. I need to go there and ride around in circles in every different country and climb all the mountain passes. And that's going to take me a lot of time. So I don't know when that's going to happen, but at some point I need to go and do some, some serious exploring there because it just looks like it's going to... In fact, I can't believe I haven't been there yet. <laughs> um, and where else? I mean, I, I also haven't visited um, most of Central Asia or the Central Asian countries. I've, I've sort of traveled through the Karakoram um, and Pakistan and Western China, um, but all of the, all of the other stands um, are as yet unknown to me. And I gather they also have good mountains. So you may be sensing a theme here. Um, <laughs> I think those, 
those areas specifically are kind of the next the next big ones I would like to to see but oh ev everywhere really and now <laughs> at the stage where I want to go back to all the places that I visited before yeah the, and the, the the list is endless essentially isn't there I don't think you if you've got those kind of um, that kind of wonder bug and those kind of itchy feet I don't think you can ever really satisfy that need to go out and see everything um so just obviously you say you, you built your bike yourself and you were self-supported camping along the way you came across a range of, of different climates as well from it must have been fairly hot in around Pakistan places like that to you've also toured in Alaska too where it was severely severely cold so what kind of setup did you have what kind of kit did you have how do you kind of combat I suppose particularly the cold extremes of temperature and um you know to Joe blogs on the street you think how on earth can you survive in a tent in those temperatures well uh to be honest, the, for a long time, the coldest temperature I experienced was in Iran. Um, I hit my there because I came, I, it was winter when I went through. I was in Turkey and Iran sort of over the winter. In fact, this time 10 years ago, I was on my way there. And um, Eastern Turkey and Western Iran, in fact, all of Iran is very high up. It's like almost the whole country is a plateau. So it's much higher up. Um, a lot of it's flat, but it's high. And then the western area of Iran and the eastern area of Turkey are very, very mountainous. And so it just gets really, really cold. It's also quite far inland. So I knew eastern Turkey would be bad. Um, and then I think I'd assumed that I'd go into Iran and kind of ride downhill and spring would come. And it did a bit. And then I went back up again and it got, got so cold. Um, and I was prepared, but I was not well prepared because I just hadn't experienced this before. And I didn't really know... What to do so I had I had been quite frightened and so I'd asked a lot of people's advice and I roughly figured out what I needed to do to stay alive but also made really stupid mistakes I was wearing normal cycling shoes I was wearing like the the cities that I used to courier in in London with an extra pair of socks and I think a pair of overshoes and so my feet were really painfully cold all the time including at night and one of the things I've since learned is that the extra pair of socks or indeed the five pairs of socks that I slept in were a mistake because you need to have fewer, bigger, looser layers to trap the air. If you have a lot of layers packed in, um, you won't be trapping air to trap warmth and also you'll be compressing your blood vessels so you'll get colder. So stupid mistakes like that. Um, I didn't have a full length sleeping mat. So another reason my feet were cold because they were resting on the ground. Um, and uh, I mean, my gloves, I still got the gloves I actually that I wore. I got a, a pair in um, an outdoor shop in Bulgaria uh, and they, they were all right, but I mean, my hands were always cold and my water bottles froze, which meant I dehydrated and that was a problem. Um, and yeah, I, I did not do very well the first time. I survived it, but it was quite horrible. And then a couple of years later, having actually really bizarrely, I think we've all heard of type two fun. I'd really enjoyed the time in Turkey and Iran and in Japan, there was a bit of winter as well and decided I wanted to do a bit more of this. So I went to ride from Anchorage to Seattle in winter, which was another magnitude of coldness because there it gets to minus 40 for long lengths of time. And it's very underpopulated so I'd be on I'd be on a road but 
there wouldn't be very many people along this road and there wouldn't be places to stay and I would just be in my tent at minus 40 quite a lot. So um, that was actually a better trip because by then I had learned a bit more about what you do in climates like that. So I had this enormous big pair of boots. I didn't have clipping shoes for that. I had a big pair of boots that looked like Santa boots. They're really big and they made of this lovely thick leather and they had this big thick, inch thick felt liner that goes inside. So it's just like, I don't know, it's like slippers really, it's lovely. And then um, I would sleep in the liners at night because um, they get sweaty during the day and that would dry them out. One of the, the big things in the very cold climates is you have to stop yourself from sweating because you're wearing quite a lot of clothes. And if you start to exert yourself even a little bit to go up a hill, then you sweat a little bit. And as soon as it gets through one or two layers of your clothing, it starts to find the cold air and it freezes immediately. So like I had a big soft shell jacket on. The inside of that was always just white with frost because I couldn't completely stop myself from sweating or I was pushing too hard or something. So that was always a challenge. And one of the really cool things I found when you're, you're camping at um, very low temperatures is that your body heat becomes almost your primary resource. So you there's no heat anywhere except you and the fuel that you're carrying. Um, so I could get heat from my stove if I could be bothered to stop and deal with the faff of lighting it because everything was quite difficult at low temperatures. But for me, the coolest thing was I'd get into my enormous like winter sleeping bag at night and I'd get in there with all my battery operated devices to stop the batteries dying in the cold. Um, all like my gloves and my shoe liners because they'd be a bit um, cold, well, wet from sweat and that would promptly freeze. They were kind of crispy and cold. And I had a big Nalgene bottle full of water that would sometimes freeze solid during the day. And I'd bring that in as well. So I'd be there in my sleeping bag with all of this stuff. And in the morning, the gloves and the liners would just be lovely and warm and dry. Like they'd come out of a tumble dryer. The bottle of water would have defrosted and it would be like the like bath water because everything had just reached my, my body temperature. <laughs> It was wonderful. I loved the fact that I was I was my own resource, which I think you always are when you're on a bike. But in cold temperatures, you just sort of are more aware of it. Yeah, and there's, there's so many little bits and bobs. There's so many things that you wouldn't think of, you know, instinctively that you kind of have to have to learn on the road, don't you? Um, and being adaptable is is, is so important. Um, and as you say, you, yeah, you, you've got a stove, so you're obviously cooking for yourself along the way and going through so many different countries. There's obviously a little, lot of different foods. There's a lot you have to adapt yourself to, to what's available sometimes and appreciate that. But are there any staples kind of around the world that you, you find is there, was there as a staple dish or a staple go-to that you could find anywhere and everywhere, really? I don't know. Um... I was going to say bread's a pretty good staple, but I think further east, like once I got into China, there wasn't really very much bread. There was in Western China, not, not really anywhere else. Um, no, it does, it does vary. I mean, the main sort of dietary requirement was just lots and lots and lots. <laughs> and I'm honestly quite lazy. So in each country, I'll quite quickly figure out which sort of biscuits I like best and which sort of soup or noodles I like best and just, get that every single time and eat that every day um, so 
So in Europe, I lived off bread and Nutella for breakfast. I think bread and cheese and tomatoes and sometimes ham or something for lunch. And then usually some sort of soup for dinner. Um, Turkey, they had great packet soups, really good bread. So that was, that was pretty much it. Um, can't remember. Iran, they had, they had really cool food actually, because they had done, I think, because they're quite a closed system, they could get away with ripping off stuff. So they had their own digestive biscuits that had very similar packaging, but it was not actual digestive biscuits. They just pirated them. And I guess because no one really goes to Iran, they just got away with it. And they had these, I think, baked beans that were way, way better than baked beans I'd eaten anywhere else. And they had these sort of tins of cooked aubergine, which were unbelievably good. And I can't remember what it was about them, but they were great. And then some places it was also very, very cheap to just stop and eat by the side of the road. So that was um, that was what I did a fair bit. I wasn't the most frugal tourer. I was pretty feral, but I wasn't above occasionally stopping and having a kebab or whatever there was available. And um, Japan, actually, I ate very well. I mostly ate out supermarkets there because it was more expensive to, to eat out. But I think it was winter and I, every day I would have this enormous pot of miso soup that I'd make and I'd chop up pumpkin and put that in and tofu and udon noodles. And that, that was kind of what I had every day. That was lovely. Yeah, you, you can't beat miso soup. It's so easy, easy to do, but yeah, it was, yeah I think we're, we're looking forward to sampling the cuisines around the world and all the different types of biscuits too, because there's, there's a lot of junk food out there to, to get into. <laughs> Um, and then after all these kind of trips of exploration, um, you kind of upped the game a bit in terms of going racing a bit more ultra distance. So, for example, you know, your first ride on, on the TCR, I think, was your first main kind of big ultra distance event, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, what then kind of instigated that move from touring to racing and it's something we get asked all the time it's like oh why don't you just go and take things slower and explore more and that's something we'd really love to go back and do in the future but our our big trip next year is obviously about speed as much as anything else well I think there's there's different ways of doing things so um, I mean I'll answer the racing question in a minute but when when I was on my first big tour the the around the world one um I spent half my time thinking I wasn't going fast enough because I knew there were other people out there who were progressing faster than me or, you know, people in the past had done it fast and I felt slow and pathetic. And the rest of the time I thought I was going way too fast because I should be staying and exploring all of this stuff and spending more time in the places where I stopped. And every time I saw, you know, a, a turning in the road, I'd think maybe I should go and see what's behind those hills. So I was keenly aware of all I was missing and also keenly aware of how slow I probably was. And then since then I have done some races and I've done some faster rides. And actually now, now that I am probably not racing anymore, I have started to revisit some of the places I saw when I raced at a much slower pace. And that is lovely because there were many wonderful things about racing, but occasionally I would think, oh, I wish I could actually stop instead of just riding past as fast as I could. Um, And now having remembered those places, I. I'm going back and actually getting to see them. So in a way, each trip is kind of a taster for trips you might do in the future. Um, but yeah, the reason I ended up racing, um, I think it was just because I like to escalate things. Um, so when I, the year um, I was on my trip in 2012, 
and that was the year that Mike Hall and Juliana Boring set the their records for cycling around the world very fast. And so that that was quite a big thing at the time. That was one of the talked about things in the cycling world. Um, and because I was doing something slightly similar, but very different as well, I was aware of this. And I'd had a very fast section of the trip where I'd had to cover over a hundred miles a day for 11 days in China to get out in time. And that had been very, very hard, but I had done it and that felt good. Um, and I think back then, I think, you know, the seeds were planted, even though it took them another couple of years to actually germinate. Um, and yeah, I think I was, I was kind of in the right place at the right time because I came home from this trip and that was when the transcontinental and the Trans Am bike race got going. It was kind of that couple of years. And that was a time where I was now a very experienced bike tourer sort of also ready for whatever came next and looking for bigger challenges. So I was like one of the obvious people who was going to get into this. Although at the time I really thought I wasn't and I was a loser who could never do anything like that. And I remember the second year that the Transcontinental ran, I, I was doing this weird thing where it was, it was on social media quite a lot and people were talking about it. And I used to just scroll past really quickly and pretend I really wasn't interested in that and really, really not interested. And thought, well, who am I even pretending to? <laughs> I eventually realized I was trying very ineptly to convince myself that I wasn't interested, but I clearly was. Um, and yeah, I think that, uh, I don't know, I needed a big challenge and that challenge was just there right in front of me. So it, uh, it fell into place. Obviously, obviously got you sucked in and the first time round you had yeah a fair few challenges that you you didn't kind of complete the ride that year but the, the second time round going into it for, for the second time how did you feel at, at that point were you confident was that was it unfinished business did you did you think you because you, you came in as first lady and in that year did you think you'd have that kind of success when you started or was it just that you had the need to go back and try again? Um, no, I didn't. I, I did think about winning because obviously everyone does. If you're in a race, of course, you're going to at least think about it. Even if it's unlikely to happen, it's still an idea that will go through your head. And I did occasionally, I always doubted myself a lot, but I also sort of thought, well, kind of do know that I can ride a bike well and I wonder what these people are like maybe maybe but it wasn't a serious thing and the year the second year I did it um I'd had quite a hard year so in a way I wasn't even very focused on the race um I'd had a very difficult summer uh, to the point that a friend had said I, I really don't think you should go and do this race it seems like a bad idea and I thought oh my god but if I don't do the race I have another two weeks at home doing nothing I need to go and do the race just to kind of you know, take me out of myself for a bit. Um, but the race, it also, I, I wasn't as worried as I'd been before or on trips because by that point, I was quite good at packing things onto a bike and leaving home. So that bit was sort of less stressful. And in a way it was much easier than the rest of my life, which was quite complicated at the time. So in that sense, I was actually quite confident because I, you know, I was going to just turn up and ride across Europe and actually I knew I could do that. And 
I knew it would be hard, but I also knew that I could deal with hard things. And I didn't know how I would do objectively in the race, but turning up and riding across Europe was actually like a welcome break from the bad year I was having. So I think it was, I wasn't confident so much as blasé, I guess. Um, not in a disrespectful way to the race, but just, I don't know, I was slightly disengaged. And then once I was on the road, I was just really happy to be on the road. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always my happy place, it reliably. Um, and that's probably partly why I insisted on actually going and doing the race. Um, it was just wonderful. I mean, for me, the really standout thing of that year is not that I won, but that I had such a good two weeks on the bike and that I have so many memories that I keep just revisiting because it was such a happy time in my life. Um, and winning, I think, I was in, I am competitive. I was interested in whether I could win. And I think if I hadn't won, I might have kept going back until I did win a race, um, whether or not that ever happened. And basically then once I had won, um, I sort of realized, well, now I know what it feels like to win a race and that completely removed the incentive to ever do it again. Strange. <laughs> Yeah, and it's well, it's obviously a massive achievement at the time, um, but I th I think it's it, you know it really interesting now that you say you're moving away from racing, and I think it's um, a very interesting statement that you found a lot of places you want to go back to. We often on Ordax ride, you ride through a little village at two in the morning, and think, oh, wouldn't it be great to come back here and maybe stop at that pub or that tea room, and um, you kind of hopefully got a little list in the back of our heads as well as places we, we want to go back to too but is that the plan going forward to you is it just to get out and about and see as much as possible or have you got any any set not necessarily races but any set trips or any set ideas coming up or is it just uh, you know trying to see as much as possible as much as, as we can do really is to see as much as possible from as many angles as possible so I've seen quite a lot of stuff from the angle of racing as fast as I can through multiple countries um and I think now as well I'm I'm a bit older and I have a little bit more money coming in so I'm certainly not rich but I can now occasionally go on a trip and you know stay in a couple of cheap hotels which makes it a little bit less kind of taxing um and also like pretty much the most fun I can have is cycling 150 miles and then sitting in a premier inn in my pants eating pizza I mean could you name me a better experience <laughs> that's honestly that is what I'm going to go and do on my birthday I think that's that's my my top life win as far as I'm concerned um so yeah I'm, I'm having a lot of fun these days um I'm in the interesting position of having done all the challenges I set myself on the bike and not really having an appetite for anything big you know I could do something like try and break the round the world record if I I wanted to but I, I kind of don't really so I've run out of things to challenge myself with which is a bizarre situation to be in or perhaps the urge to challenge myself because I mean there are always new challenges I could get into a new discipline of cycling if I really wanted that so now it's, it's it doesn't really feed that part of me it feeds the sort of having a really nice time, knowing this will make me happy, knowing I have a place to go um, to give myself that feeling that I know I will get. Um, so yeah, that is that is more or less what I'm doing. That said, I have, um, I have plans. Um, 
I've been for the last two, well, not for the last two years, but in recent years, I've been the lead cyclist for a ride called Le Loop, um, which is a charity ride for amateur cyclists. And the idea is we do every single stage of the Tour de France a week before the tour, um, which when you think about it is just an astonishing thing for normal people to do. Uh, because these are back-to-back 200-kilometer -back stages, and even the flat ones are not flat, and the mountainous ones could be 5,000 meters of climbing. And, I mean, I am exhausted by the end of it, and the riders, I don't know how they get through it, but at the same time, it's just such a beautiful thing to do, because uh, France is... People always ask me what my top countries are for cycling, and I, I cannot possibly say, but France, basically. <laughs> It's got so many good roads and every year the tour takes us to different ones and I discover new parts and it's got so many areas, uh, so many climates and different types of mountain but even just a couple of these places a country would be proud of and France just has almost too many. Um, so I get to spend two weeks every summer just riding through glorious scenery, amazing food enjoying beautiful tarmac and climbing mountains with a bunch of heroes so that's uh that's my current uh big thing i do every year um and then i just i don't know i'm doing various tours next year i haven't quite hammered out the plans but um, i'm hoping to go to some places that i have not yet been that's that sounds amazing yeah and yeah be uh fascinated to see where, where you managed it to, to get to and I had spotted Le Loop actually I thought wow that looks like an amazing concept particularly yeah because it's so relatable for the you know the general public everybody knows the Tour de France and it therefore puts it in perspective for, for you know general people to see what what they what they can achieve so I think it's it's a fantastic concept and yeah really really interesting um just before we finish up, Emily, I've got a few tandem trivia questions for you. I promise they're not too awful. Uh, the first one is, have you ever ridden a tandem? Oh, yes, once. <laughs> Very good. And was, it, was that just a fun ride or was it? Uh... <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> it was a very old tandem that flexed when you pedaled it. And um, it was being ridden by me and another control freak and it didn't go very well. And I think I decided that tandems are probably not for me. <laughs> yeah, there does need to be a balance, a balance of power there. Um, so maybe not on that note, but if you were to consider riding a tandem, if you could ride a tandem with anybody you wanted, alive, dead, they could even be fictional, whatever, who, who would you put on a tandem with you? Ooh, um, oh, you could have given me a heads up about this question for <laughs> different reasons. Um, I think I would like, um, I'm going to suggest two. I think probably the first one would be my sister because she's very strong and so she would um, probably do most of the work. And the second one, I think, would be Federico Bahamontes because he was also a very slow descender. And I know one of the problems with tandems is that they go downhill very fast, which I don't like. So I'd like to go with someone who was similarly cautious and was not up for letting the brakes off. <laughs> Fair enough. And 
you might have almost answered this question already, but would you you be on the front as captain or would you be on the, the back as Stoker with your, your feet up? Well, with my sister, I think I would be on the front because I'm the more proficient cyclist and I think she would make a very good Stoker. And with Bahamontes, I would put him on the front. Very good. No, that's it. That's great answers. Um, and then when me and, and Steve, my husband, we're on tandem together, we often say we're joined by the frame. Um, is there anything on your rides that you are joined by the frame to? Is there anything you can't do without, be it a bit of kit, a bit of gear, um, even, you know, certain items of food? I think we've had anything like that that is kind of a necessity for you on, on any of these sorts of rides. <laughs> as well because um when i'm on a bike packing trip everything i'm carrying is essential because if it wasn't i would have left it at home um so it's quite hard to pick out one of the many essential things um i think at the moment just because it's one of the last bits of kit i used i would say um, i really like having a couple of petzl bindi head torches because they're really tiny they're usb chargeable very very light and they're great head torches. Um, and, you know, they take up no space and they're super lightweight. They're much smaller than most head torches. But also, they make really good backup bike lights. So I always have a couple in my pocket. And quite often I've been caught out and lost my lights or forgotten them or something. And they're, they're really good. They've got a very strong red beam and a very bright white beam. And I think that's a great suggestion, actually. It's one of the things I found quite early on with night riding. I really struggle if I've not got a light on my helmet because you've therefore just got the, if you've just got the light on the bike, you've just got the road in front of you and it's quite easy to miss signs and directions. So having a head torch or a headlight makes a big difference. And quite good for stringing up in the, the tent as well of the evening and creating a little bit of light for yourself too. So no, I think that's a, a very valid suggestion. Um, and then last but not least, why, why should we ride around the world on a tandem and go for the world record? <laughs> um i guess be because it's there and it will hopefully be a lot of fun <laughs> yeah that, that's fantastic thank you so much for your time emily it's it's been great to chat to you and as i say you've been a, a big inspiration with um all your feats so yes thank you for coming on and all the best for the future i can't wait to see what you get up to too good luck <laughs>